This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We note with sadness as we start this program the passing of an American who spoke his mind, who was eloquent and persuasive when he did so, and was not afraid to rattle cages and take on the powerful. We're even sadder when the person in question was someone who took the time to speak with us on this program. So it is, we regret to inform you, if you've not already heard, about the passing of attorney and best-selling author Vincent Bugliosi. Unfortunately, we only spoke with him twice, but when we did so, we gave him two segments to discuss two different books of his. First, Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and the Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder. I think it's fair to say that it's a tribute to our respect for Mr. Bugliosi that we gave him that 45 minutes to expound upon his theories in the JFK assassination, even though this correspondent is quite convinced that, for the most part, he's dead wrong. When some of my friends in what I guess you would call the JFK assassination research community questioned me about doing so, my response was, you have to respect this guy. He won my undying respect when he penned a piece for The Nation magazine in February of 2001 titled, None Dare Call It Treason. It apparently generated more audience response than any other article that has ever appeared in The Nation. Well, Yossi would later expand upon the piece... In the book, titled The Betrayal of America, How the Supreme Court Undermined the Constitution and Chose Our President. It's sad for me to note that that is the book I really would have liked to have talked to him about. Although God knows he had several other pretty good ones, Helter Skelter holds the record for being the best-selling true crime book in history. Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which essentially invented the genre, is second. But it also would have been interesting to have spoken with him about his book, Outrage, The Five Reasons Why O.J. Simpson Got Away with Murder, or possibly No Island of Sanity, Paula Jones versus Bill Clinton, The Supreme Court on Trial. Vincent Bugliosi did not adhere to any particular uh, political slant. He would call him as he saw him. We'll be excerpting our chats with him in segment two, as well as, I think, reading from some of his uh, other books, particularly the Betrayal of America, How the Supreme Court Undermined the Constitution and Chose Our President. It was, and I think still is, one of the best things written about the theft of the 2000 election by the Republicans. Worth mentioning that one of the thieves, by the way, is <laughs> the leading contender to become the GOP nominee in 2016. That's something to think about. And before we're done today, we'll hear from some old friends and new Let's start the program as we like to do with on this date in history. Our date in question is the 11th of June. It was on June 11th in 1495 that the second voyage of the Italian-born Spanish explorer Christopher Columbus, which entailed 17 caravels and 1,500 men to establish settlements in the islands he'd visited on his first voyage, returned to Spain after a nearly two-year journey. It hadn't worked out so well. Fourteen years later, on this date, June 11, 1509, King Henry VIII of England took Catherine of Aragon, widow of his brother, as the first of his six brides. And yeah, that first one didn't work out so well either. If you're an arch-Catholic king, and the Catholic Church is steadfastly against divorce, well, 
then don't marry a cousin of the Pope. That's all we got to say. And on June 11th in 1963, lines were drawn in the defining struggles for civil rights in America. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested for attempting to integrate restaurants in Florida, while Alabama Governor George Wallace tries to thwart the registration of African-American students at the University of Alabama. In a speech, President John F. Kennedy brands segregation as morally wrong, concluding, it's time to act. And finally, on June 11th in 1979, John Wayne, the enormously popular, if not very talented, actor, passed away of cancer at the age of 72. Our quote of the day, and boy, this one's all time, comes from the legendary E.B. White, who said, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. Mr. White, we know what you mean. And our quip of the day comes from the legendary British wit Malcolm Muggeridge, who said, People do not believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. That's also all time. Our good news item for today's program is that Jerry Brown, California's governor, has finally woken up to the fact that California might have an overpopulation problem. For our part, we are glad this has finally occurred to a California politician. Governor Brown apparently said a couple days ago that he's worried the Golden State will eventually have too many people for our state's water supplies to support. Hello! All right, we're going to roll our anecdote, good news, and joke section into one today. We mentioned recently on this program that our run on terrestrial radio will probably come to an end in the not-too-distant future. We're a little unclear on the details ourselves. We do note that we're on the trail of the legendary talk show host Dick Cavett before we, uh, before we go. And I want to note that although he is a legendary television host, he is, above all else, a writer. For many years, he's been doing a column for the New York Times, and a collection of those is currently out there in bookstores titled Brief Encounters, Conversations, Magic Moments, and Assorted Hijinks. We noted back in 2010 the passing of another TV legend, Art Linkletter, and so did Dick Cavett. To excerpt from his column... The voice of the editor wondered if instead of the column I would have handed in this time, I might want to do a short, quick appreciation of Art Linkletter. My only reluctance in accepting the mission is that what I have to offer may not be everybody's idea of an appreciation. I wrote for Linkletter for a week, for the same reason I wrote for a lot of famous people for a week or two only. My boss-to-be, Johnny Carson, was canny enough not to replace my then-former boss, Jack Parr, immediately upon Jack's exit from The Tonight Show in 1962. There may also have been contractual obligations that kept him from doing so. Even if so, the wise thing for Carson was not to appear to jump into Jack's chair while people were still lamenting Jack's departure. Said Cavett, my guess is the gap between the two stars was bigger than most people remember. Following Jack came a kind of summer stock season for tonight. Entertainers of all kinds, shapes, and degrees of talent hosted the show. For some reason, and partly because Jack had established it, each felt the need to do the monologue. The results were mixed. He goes on to describe the time when Art Linkletter was in the Tonight Show chair. Said Cavett, the great writer David Lloyd would drop on Linkletter's desk his usual gems only to have them rejected. Cavett goes on, one night at dinner at Dave's house in Beverly Hills, many years later, when his resume had gone on from Art Linkletter to the, to the Mary Tyler Moore show, 
Dave reduced the table to hysterics by recalling a specific example of what he called how to link letter eyes a joke. Ready? Well, all you youngsters need to know is that there was once a popular comic named Jack E. Leonard, a man physically rotund enough to be appropriately and affectionately called Fat Jack. Here's the one line Art selected from that day's Dave Lloyd submissions. Quote, on tonight's show, we're going to talk about comedy teams. You know, comedy teams like Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Martin and Lewis, Jackie Leonard. Notes Cabot, that's how Dave wrote it. Cabot goes on, here's what Art, democratically ensuring that no one hearing it should be left in the dark, did to it. On tonight's show, we're going to talk about comedy teams. You know, comedy teams like Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Martin and Lewis, and big fat Jackie Leonard, who's so fat, he's a one-man comedy team all by himself. (laughs) Said Cabot. The audience reaction? Well, if someone had dropped a pin, it would have been deafening. The host of the show would like to imagine that in some alternative universe, he might be somewhere be a comedy writer, but he's not. But I can tell you this with some assurance. Don't explain the joke. Put it out there and leave it go at that. If you have to explain to people why it's funny, you're toast. All right, our stat of the day is that the league owners of the NFL have decided to change the scoring system for the point-after touchdown. Well, they're not changing the scoring, but they're going to change where it is you have to kick it from. Instead of spotting it at the two-yard line, the PAT will be moved back to the 15, making it effectively a 33-yard kick. And this will provide the defense with the opportunity to return the ball for two points. Teams electing to go for the two-point conversion instead of the kick will still remain at the two-yard line. Sounds like a good rule to us. I hope they enact it, and I hope we can have our sports correspondent, Sean Minton, return to the program to talk about that and other sports interesting things, because sports is part of our lives, and we think a small part of public affairs. Frankly, we wish it was a smaller part, but it is what it is. And there is one combination good news slash statistical item that we uh, should have mentioned a few weeks ago but didn't. I think we should do so now. One month ago, the WHO declared the nation of Liberia free of Ebola. 42 days had passed since the last person had died. Almost 5,000 people were killed by the disease in Liberia. So that is good news. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for buzzed driving after a Montana motorist was pulled over for reckless driving because his car was full of thousands of swarming honeybees. (laughs) Apparently, the cops had to let him go with a warning because there is no law in Montana against transporting bees in your car. I have to confess, I'm especially taken by this piece because, oh, about a month or so ago, yours truly had to transport a hive full of honeybees. Luckily, I was able to do so without a single sting by dressing up in a suit, getting up at 5 a.m. and putting the hive in a box. Well, a larger cardboard box, which I sealed. All went surprisingly well. At least one of my neighbors is still amused about how when I unpacked the bees the year before, things did not go perfectly well. But that, dear listener, is a story for another day. 
All right. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for not respecting dibs after an 82-year-old Florida man was charged with slashing the tires of an 88-year-old woman's car because she took his favorite seat at the weekly bingo game. And it was an ugly week last week for recidivism. With the news that a New Jersey man who served time for robbing a shoe store is now headed back to prison for another robbery at the same store with the same clerk behind the counter. Evidently, a Christopher Miller was sentenced last week to 16 years in prison. The 41-year-old man had pled guilty earlier this year to a robbery charge. Authorities say the March 2014 robbery occurred the day after Miller had been released from prison after finishing his 15-year sentence for the 1999 robbery. Police say he made off with $389. And finally, it was both a bad and, I guess you'd say, ugly week last week for breakfast buffets with the news that more than 30 people were ordered to leave a Michigan motel when an argument over a waffle iron escalated into a near riot. Police report that one woman told another, that's my waffle. The other lady said, no, it's mine. And then it went downhill from there. Said a police spokesman, we had two-thirds of our road patrol tied up in this fiasco. How about this item from our Only in America file? The FBI has been secretly operating a small fleet of low-flying planes that circle U.S. cities conducting video and cell phone surveillance, according to a report last week in the Associated Press. Cities in 11 states have been surveilled in the past month alone, mostly without a judge's approval, said the AP. The planes, equipped with high-tech cameras and in some cases self-tracking technology, have been spotted circling over Houston, Chicago, and Boston for hours at a time, as well as orbiting large buildings like the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota. The FBI, which hid the use of the 90 Cessna aircraft behind at least 13 fake companies, acknowledged its use of the planes, but said the program targeted, quote, specific individuals, unquote, and did not involve mass surveillance. The FBI also promised that the check's in the mail. We also want to commend our old pal Cosmo Garvin for a piece he wrote in the Sacramento News and Review last month. The uh, pro-arena freebooters and buccaneers, which put uh, Kevin Johnson in the mayoral chair, along with a few others, have tried to tell us that city assets were not really involved uh, in in this arena deal. And, uh, of course, a lot of documents that Cosmo and others have uh, dug out seem to indicate otherwise. To quote from the article, Mayor Kevin Johnson and friends traveled to the Tribeca Film Festival last month for the premiere of an ESPN-produced documentary, Down in the Valley, which recounts Team KJ's triumphant campaign to keep the Kings in Sacramento. For many, that's the only version of the Kings Arena story that needs telling. But a different story is spooling out in Sacramento's Superior Court. Three Sacramento residents and their lawyers are suing the city, claiming Sacramento officials committed fraud by giving King's investors as much as $100 million worth of sweeteners, including the rights to build digital billboards and the city-owned parking garage between downtown Plaza. The city gave these assets to ensure the team's profitability while never disclosing the real costs to the public. Later in the PC notes, the city of Sacramento's attorneys call this story salacious, slanderous, and a work of fiction, but emails and other documents submitted to the court show the King's majority owner, Vivek Ranadive, did ask the city for millions in additional revenue above and beyond the city's contribution to the arena because he felt he had overpaid for the team. 
Cosmo notes the officially the city's entire contribution to the arena deal is $255 million, but notes the city also agreed to give the Kings its parking garage under downtown plaza and agreed to lease six city-owned parcels of land to the Kings, along with the rights to build jumbo-sized digital billboards on each site. The Kings would pay nothing for these leases for 35 years. The city acknowledged giving these assets, but at the same time claimed they had no monetary value. According to the plaintiffs, the assets amount to a hidden subsidy for the Kings. Duh! Anyway, we hope you check out the piece titled A Different Arena Story. I'm sure you can find the Sacramento News and Review online. Anyway, I hope you, uh, like me, appreciated this wonderful weather we had here in the uh, greater Davis slash Sacramento metropolitan area yesterday. It was cool. It was cloudy. It was a very light drizzle. I thought I was in Costa Rica. I do hope we get a few more days like this before uh, the heat of summer arrives. And let's see if we can't uh, tap into some cool mists from our San Francisco comic, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about the new USA Freedom Act, passed by Congress and signed into law by President Obama in order to reform parts of the Patriot Act. You gotta admit, it's a nice name. USA Freedom. Who can complain about that? Surprised our collection of elected prawns showed such restraint and didn't call it the mom and apple pie and cute little kittens chasing yarn through a corn maze act. Although there was much huffing and puffing and pulling of hair, to be honest, not much has changed. The new law extends three expiring surveillance provisions. The NSA is still able to collect data for phone numbers that contact anybody on their list of suspected bad guys, and then collect data on the numbers that contact those numbers and the numbers that contact those numbers. Kind of like a secret six degrees of Kevin Bacon. As a matter of fact, by now, Kevin Bacon is undoubtedly the owner of a suspect number. Never too sure about that guy. The bill also reinstates the roving wiretap provision, which allows the CIA to monitor sneaky guys who keep throwing away their cell phones, as well as the lone wolf provision, which reputedly has never been used. Yeah, right. The new law does give businesses more leeway to report information requests they've received from the government, but we don't know how much more. On a 1 to 100 scale, we'd hazard a guess it's a 1. But hey, it's baby steps, a band-aid on a sucking chest wound, but one of those flesh-colored band-aids that can be worn on stage and the audience never notices. Of course, the biggest threat to our store of personal information is not the NSA or the FBI or the CIA, but rather Facebook. One of these days, Julian Assange is going to target Mark Zuckerberg, and then all hell is going to break loose. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will All right, before we go to break, I think I'm going to pull an item of one of the original Uncle John's bathroom readers. This was the eighth one of the series, which is, I don't know, must be pushing 30 by now. As mentioned at the top of the hour, we've been an admirer of Vince Bugliosi for his uh, fearlessness in attacking the political structure in America. 
calling the five Supreme Court justices in the Gore v. Bush case felons, basically, treasonous ones at that. And he was referring in this case to Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, who are still going to be with us for God knows how much longer, along with Sandra Day O'Connor, William Rehnquist, and Sacramento and McGeorge Law School's very own Anthony Kennedy. Like Mr. Boyosi, we were astounded at how America's press just rolled over on the 2000 election fiasco, which, which caused us to conclude somewhat sadly that, uh, to some degree at least, the fix is in. Uncle John's reader went back to 1934 to talk about how the fix was in on coverage, at least in the Hearst papers, of the Nazi regime. This is worth a quote or two from. In September of 1934, William Randolph Hearst went to the world-famous spot Bad Nauheim to take the waters. The Nazi government welcomed him. After a month of socializing with prominent Germans, Hearst was invited to meet the new chancellor, Adolf Hitler. According to German newspapers, Hearst was charmed and converted by the Nazi leader. The German newspapers may have been right. When he returned to the U.S., Hearst completely changed the editorial policy of his 19 daily newspapers and began praising the Nazi regime. For example, a September 1934 editorial signed by Hearst began, Hitler is enormously unpopular outside of Germany and enormously popular in Germany. This is not difficult to understand. Hitler restored character and courage. Hitler gave hope and confidence. He established order and utility of purpose. And the Germans love him for that. Asked the writers at the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers, uh, was Hearst offering his praise for free or was he paid? Suspicious facts in the case? Hearst's change in editorial policy came less than a month after the Nazi Ministry of Propaganda first subscribed to his international news service, INS. The INS was a wire service Hearst had created to compete against AP and United Press. INS was considered by journalists to be by far the worst of the three services. The Nazis paid Hearst more than $400,000 a year for their subscription to INS at a time when other customers paid only fifty dollars to $70,000 for the same service. The Nazis paid only $40,000 for their subscription to AP. According to papers filed in a lawsuit involving Hearst in the 1930s, after his visit, Hearst instructed all Hearst press correspondents in Germany, including those of INS, to report happenings there only in a friendly manner. And week after week, Hearst papers ran pieces sympathetic to the Nazis. One article would justify German rearmament to the American people was written by Hermann Goering, Hitler's Minister of Aviation. So was there a conspiracy here? Well, apparently the U.S. ambassador to Germany, William E. Dodd, thought so. According to Dodd, who was ambassador from 33 to 37, Hitler sent two of his chief propagandists to meet with Hearst at Bad Neuheim to see how his image could be polished. When they found him receptive, they set up a meeting and cut the deal. When Dodd found out about it, he did not hesitate to tell the president this was not a legitimate business deal. It was buying political support. Author George Seldes, writing about these later in the book, Even the Gods Can't Change History, noted that Hearst's deals with the two dictators, also Mussolini was involved, were widely rumored in the industry, but he was so powerful that of the 1,730 daily newspapers in America which Hearst didn't own, not even 1% said a word about the situation. So it was that Hearst, untouched by the scandal, continued to smear the patriotism of socialists, liberals, and other un-Americans until the day he died. And ironically, no one seemed to question his motives. If you know anything about this story, please don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at We would like to 
hear from those better informed. But we got to take a short break, so let's do so. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. When we come back, we're going to talk about the late, great Vincent Bugliosi. Thank you. 